0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to The Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to pick up our new book, for those of you who know already, we've put out a book very recently, but if you have not heard of it, it's called The Infinite for Little Minds, The Doctrine of God for Children, a small book book introducing young minds to the doctrine of god you can pick your copy up on amazon today the infinite for little minds and today we're going to be talking about a doctrine that we have discussed before theology proper and we're not going to be going into it into a great amount of detail a lot of this has been dealt with already in great detail actually i think all of it has The concepts we'll be talking about today have been dealt with in in good detail on our show and in other places, I think, but I saw a clip put out by Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a well known atheist. He is a biologist. He taught at Oxford University, uh, very outspoken against religion, especially Christianity, has done debates. Uh, discussions with other religious thinkers, philosophical thinkers, etc. But he put out a clip, uh, Craig Carter, Dr. Craig A. Carter, up in Canada at Tyndall College. He posted it, and it was very interesting. Apparently, Dawkins has talked about simplicity before, or at least the doctrine of God. I'm not as familiar with Dawkins' discussion of theological concepts. I've heard some things he said, and... I've certainly heard some discussions that he's had, but I'm, I'm not familiar with every discussion that he's had on, on theology. But apparently he's talked about the doctrine of God before. But I thought it was very interesting that an atheist was trying to address this particular issue. Well, not really issue, but this particular concept that God is simple as opposed to complex. And he basically used on Twitter this clip from a larger discussion that he had to discuss simplicity, why it was absurd, why he thought it was absurd, why it doesn't work. And so I was just kind of taken a step back by it, and I thought it would be good to talk about. Now, we do see this philosophical decay in the secular world. That's expected. We've seen that for quite a long time at this point where you see these philosophical ideas that do not comport with scripture, do not comport with historical understandings of philosophy that are consistent, that make sense, that are consistent with reason and logic, they start to crumble. And you especially see that as it relates to naturalism in evolution, which of course Dawkins pushes. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, I want to play uh, some of the clip I'm not going to play the clip that he put on Twitter necessarily, but uh, I think what was on Twitter will be encapsulated within what I'm going to play, because it was part of a larger discussion he was having with other uh, religious and philosophical thinkers uh, on this panel. And this was part of the discussion. So I want to play a little bit of that and, and discuss. But I think what this shows, yes, it, one of the things I want to bring out from this discussion, yes, yes. These philosophical failures are prevalent in secular circles. We should expect that from pagans because pagans they're going to do what they're going to do. But we do see some decay among Christian circles too. And that's a that's one of the lessons I want to bring up here. Not just talking about Dawkins, but talking about how we see some of these secular ideas, these this philosophical decay, not just in the secular world, but it's very much alive and well in christian circles unfortunately so in other words to leave a sound metaphysic and philosophy is to leave scripture since if those two things end up being consistent with scripture you would be abandoning the scripture when leaving a sound version of those two things so it's important to have a sound metaphysic and a sound philosophy that is consistent with scripture but as soon as you abandon those things, you start to see decay among how you think of God, how you understand God, etc. But Dawkins is really, I would say, kind of the extreme version or one of the extreme versions of it because of where he's coming from. He's coming at this from a Darwinian perspective. He has a philosophical concept of naturalism that just is completely foreign, to the philosophical groundwork that was laid in previous generations. So it's, it's important, I think, to see the contrast. And then how can we avoid that as Christians? How do we avoid falling into that same trap? So I think there's going to be some helpful things we can glean here. Um, I want to look at some of Fazer's book called The Last Superstition, where he and some others deal with something called the New Atheism. Uh, I haven't read the book in total. I used it as a reference and actually... Uh, I'd want to give kudos and thank Brother uh, again. Looking at Dr. Craig Carter, who recommended the book to me uh, as I was thinking about uh, what Dawkins was saying, and uh, he recommended this book, and I used it as a reference. And I want to quote some of it here because I think it it helps kind of helps us to see kind of from the secular point of view, at least, where some of these ideas are coming from. Uh, So I want to read a little bit here. So this is from Faser. In uh, full disclosure, Faser is a Roman Catholic, uh, but he has some very helpful things on the philosophical side that I think are helpful. And looking at some of the, the trajectory that culture has gone. So this is from Faser in The Last Superstition. Quote, Nagel goes on to note that Darwin... That, quote, Darwin enabled modern secular culture to heave a great collective sigh of relief by apparently providing a way to eliminate purpose, meaning, and design as fundamental features of the world, end quote. And then Fazer goes on to say, in fact, the idea that science eliminates, quote, purpose, meaning, and design as fundamental features of the world, end quote, goes back, as we will see long before Darwin, to the very beginnings of modern science. And it informs the widespread perception that there has for centuries been a war between science and religion, and that religion has been steadily losing. Yet the idea in question is not itself a scientific one at all, but a philosophical one. And accordingly, the fabled science versus religion war is a myth. Indeed, one might think of it as the founding myth of modern secularism, the Galileo and the Newton taking the place of Romulus and Remus, And quote. So I I think this is very, very helpful because what we see Faser bringing out here is that the issue is deeper than just a scientific one, and it's even not scientific at all. I mean, if you look at these categories of science versus religion, I mean, you could put science within a philosophical framework, and it really is a philosophy in and of itself. And so you start to see this understanding that it's really not science versus religion. That it is a philosophical issue. The issue with Darwinianism coming against biblical understandings of of the world and of the natural world. It is very, very interesting to see that. But we see that at the root of it, ultimately as Christians, we know the root is sin. But in terms of the thinking behind it and where those things come from, from a philosophical perspective, at the root of it all is philosophy one's way they view the world, they view ultimate things, they view the way the world works is a philosophical one. So if we understand where we're coming from, where these other people are coming from, like a Dawkins, we can and attack their philosophy and deal with their philosophy, we can undermine the entire system. And that's really what it boils down to. Uh, Darwinian evolution is not something that just sprung out of a vacuum. It came from a philosophical framework. It's based on certain understandings of how the world works in a cosmological sense, in an ultimate sense, even though it's focused on the natural world. It makes assumptions about metaphysical realities and the cosmos and those ultimate things, which philosophy ultimately deals with. And so we can actually understand that from a, you know, we can we can look at this uh, in light of Colossians two eight, which says, "Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ." So we're not to be following after pagan philosophy, but we're to be following philosophy that's biblical. We're to be following philosophy that is consistent with the scriptures. This passage is not neglecting philosophy or saying that we shouldn't have any kind of philosophy, but that our philosophy should be correct. Uh, John Gill does, I think, a really good job in his Bible commentary on this verse, talking about how it's not a rejection of all philosophy, but we need to have a right philosophy. And Gill even says that philosophy is to be a handmaiden, but not a mistress. OK, it's to help. It's to be his help as much as it is consistent with Scripture. OK, and so we can deal with Dawkins understanding of the world. We can deal with Dawkins understanding of God on a philosophical level. Uh, because we're looking at it because it is a philosophical understanding, but we can deal with it at a scriptural level in this way. Are we able to look at his philosophy in light of Scripture? Is this a consistent philosophy? It is it a truthful philosophy? It's not whether we pick philosophy over scripture. It's whether is the philosophy consistent with scripture? And then can we use that philosophy once we find out it is consistent with scripture? And that's how we have to attack this particular issue. Phaser, uh, again, he says, quote, suffice it for now to say that the so-called, quote, war between science and religion, end quote, is really a war. Between two rival philosophical worldviews and not at bottom a scientific or theological dispute at all. Now, we do know that theology is part of this discussion. I don't think, uh, I don't think Phaser would dispute that. But I think what he's getting at here is that even when you're looking at a theological understanding, like you're reading the scriptures and you have an understanding of God and you're coming against a view like Dawkins has, uh, even the theological framework that you're using is a philosophical framework at the end of it. Your theological framework is based on a particular philosophy that you are coming to the table with. So really at the end of it, they're both philosophical worldviews that you are having to you know, compete with the other against. And then find out which one is true and which one is not. And that's where we have an understanding of scripture as Christians. And we pit that against the philosophy of the world. And when the scriptures talk about not loving the world, First you know, John chapter 2, we're not to love the world of the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's not about uh, necessarily you know, watching movies or whether you have a TV in your house or whatever the case might be. In and of themselves, those things aren't bad. The issue there is, are we adopting the mindset of the world, the philosophy of the world? Is that what we are doing? Are we engaging in in a way that is embracing the philosophy of the world, that we're loving the world? We're embracing the world's hatred of God and its mindset against the scriptures. That's what it means to hate the world. Not whether or not I have a TV in my house. Uh, That's not what the scriptures are talking about there. So, competing philosophies, how we think of the world. Is it biblical or is it of this world? That's really the issue that's uh, being gotten out here. Okay, so with that long introduction, I want to dive into the video here. We'll take a look at some of what Dawkins says here. Let me get it set up. right. And for those of you who are listening on the audio side and aren't watching the video, this is a panel. So it's Richard Swinburne, Dawkins, and uh, two ladies here. I, I don't recall their names, but each person is coming and representing a different uh, worldview, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, the lady on the right of Swinburne, Swinburne's like the, the older gentleman uh, sitting in the the white coat and pants uh the lady sitting to his right is discussing more of a hindu understanding of the world and coming at it from that perspective i don't know if she's she's of the hindu religion but she's at least informing the discussion from that perspective the lady on the right to the left to dawkins left is uh i believe she's coming at this from a philosophical perspective Dawkins is obviously coming at this from a scientific, biological perspective, and Swinburne is representing a Christian perspective. quote unquote. I don't uh, Swinburne is, is Eastern Orthodox, I think. Uh, so and, and as the video goes along, one kind of wonders if he's really representing a classical biblical theist view, but uh, I think there's definitely things to, to glean here uh matthew thank you thanks for this ministry happy to catch it i think you might catch it live you're very welcome i'm glad the ministry is helpful thanks for joining and i hope this episode is beneficial to you uh thanks for joining today so let's dive right into the video i'm starting at around the 44 minute mark because that's kind of where um that's kind of where a lot of this discussion around simplicity starts to really take place so let's take a listen to say here that a non-physical, non-scientific
1: explanation can never be pushed back against the wall because science will never reach that type of cause. Well, can, uh, ordinary ones can be pushed back a bit, but uh, if you postulate an omnipotent God, then it can't be pushed back anymore because if there was an, another God that uh, caused the omnipotent God, the omnipotent God wouldn't be omnipotent. So once you've got there, you do reach a stop. And as regards uh, this simplicity, um, or, uh, I think perhaps ordinary detective examples or historical examples will illustrate this point. Um, suppose you find all the coins in a, in a deposit have the same head on them.
0: Uh, do you not? So just a, a little more context here. So the gentleman on the left to your left, the moderator of this discussion is trying to pull out some answers based on different, you know, concepts of really where existence came from like why do we exist etc why are we here that's the title of the video why are we here exploring the mystery of existence so right now they're talking about omnipotence and how is omnipotent omnipotence coming into god being the first If, if you have an omnipotent being then obviously there can't be anyone or anything prior to that being because then that being would no longer be omnipotent all-powerful because there's something previous to god or whatever that being is that has more power than the thing that is claiming to be omnipotent or it wouldn't be prior to it so that's kind of the idea that they're talking about here and this is really where the idea of simplicity is going to flow from so after swinberg gives his discussion here then we'll start to hear dawkins talk about simplicity
1: You're not going to look for a separate explanation for each of the the heads. You're going to look for one explanation which explains them. And if you can do it by one explanation, one entity which brings them about, you're not going to look for two entities, fewness of entities, um, substances, as philosophers call them, as well as simplicity of properties. In other words, a a number zero as opposed to a number 2.3546. Um, these are the criteria we're both in history and in detective work and in physics that you're looking for. Well, Richard Swinburne a moment ago said any scientifically minded person would believe that God is the ultimate cause. Why is it about this explanation that you, you're not happy to entertain,
0: Richard? Is it? Don't is, you know? Is it, is it simplicity? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it obvious? Is it? Sim- is it? You know, Richard Dawkins in his sarcasm. Uh, he definitely is not. Uh, he He's kind of a prickly dude. Let's just say that. Simplicity,
1: the main point, though. Or is it just something non-physical? Richard Swinburne is saying that God is simple because he's a single entity. Yeah. yeah. How can he be a single entity if he's simultaneously... Controlling the universe, every particle in the universe. He's forgiving our sins. Mm. He's giving us free will. He's deciding whether or not you'll die or not on a certain day. Such a thing is not a single simple entity. It's a highly complicated, mammoth, great, big, fat entity. <laughs> well, take another example of a very simple entity: uh, uh, a particle <coughs> of matter here. This particle of matter is influencing all sorts of other particles of matter all over the universe. How can it do that with just being one particle of matter? Well, it does, according to the uh, law of gravity. Well, yes, so what? I mean, that. Uh, well, you what? were saying that in order to have <laughs> a large number of effects, it had to be a big thing. In order to do the things that God is supposed to be doing, he cannot be simple. He, he's an entity of subjective consciousness. He thinks about things. He has will, free will. He has the power to influence anything in the world that he wants to do. He even does the things that the Christians believe mm-hmm. and all the other religions believe. How can you possibly say that such an entity is a single, simple entity? Well, I am giving you the example that an entity which is a pretty small, and unconscious entity can have a very large number of effects, and if God can have a large, very large number of effects, and yet be <coughs> virtually uh, even smaller than an electron—in other words, having no spatial extension—why um, shouldn't you say so? It is the nature of science to postulate entities to. Ex- which are unobservable and have strange properties in order to explain observable entities. Uh, we postulated atoms, etc., with their properties in order to explain regular combinations of substances by weight and volume. We postulate.
0: Um, uh, All right, I think I'll stop there. The conversation goes on quite a bit, um, but I, I think Dawkins really hit his point home as it relates to simplicity and why it's a problem, according to him anyways. Uh, Nicholas uh, Nibak, watching from Mexico, great topic. Dawkins is irritating to say the less. May God have mercy on him. Yes, may God have mercy on him. We we certainly, at least I do, I desire that Dawkins come to know the Lord and reject his foolish thinking. Um, but, you know, here we are. He He's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and hates God. Um, but we do, I, I do wish for his salvation, but thanks for watching Nicholas. And I hope this is beneficial to you. All right. So we see Swinberg kind of trying to, to talk about God in a present God simplicity in a very interesting way. I think with Swinberg, he's trying to come at this primarily from a scientific worldview, kind of coming down to Dawkins level. And I don't think that helps him at all. Uh, I think he could have he could have come at this. There's plenty of material out there from a Christian historical perspective, especially as the Eastern Eastern Orthodox. I think he kind of should have known better in his response, although I think I understand what he's trying to do. but uh, I do think that he came at this from completely the wrong way. However, if he it seems he's postulating that some God is a simple entity and you must have a simple entity in order to do, you know all of these so you can't have like an infinite regress you have to have an omnipotent being to do all these things and that omnipotent being must be simple so i think that principle is there um one thing i will note interestingly enough john owen the great puritan who many of us reform people know about uh speaking of the the college of oxford because swinburne uh, taught there or at least taught there and dawkins taught at oxford you can see the crumbling within uh, that particular university that particular university used to house some very orthodox guys and i i believe there were men from the westminster assembly who put together westminster confession of faith that even attended there but owen attended there at age 12 and he eventually became the vice chancellor of the entire school so and he had he, he believed in classical theism he had a classical theistic understanding Uh, of God, at least at the the very core of his his understanding of the doctrine of God. So, and, and yet we see this prominent academic, Dawkins, who taught at that very school that reformed men attended and or led, denying the very thing that a former vice chancellor of the school espoused. And I think it's interesting. It's kind of ironic, I guess. And it just shows how that school has changed and how Europe has changed and become much more uh, liberal and, and rejecting these Orthodox arcs. You can kind of see that here too, uh, like in the US with Princeton, Princeton University used to be a, 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 I think a pretty Orthodox school, but then you wouldn't even recognize it now in terms of what it used to be. So you, you do see academia you know, falling away from orthodoxy, at least on the theological side. But I just thought that was an interesting note historically. You see, one end of the spectrum over here with Dawkins, who taught at the school that an orthodox man such as John Owen was vice chancellor of, and they ha- would have butted heads on on this particular issue. Uh, so I I think it's very interesting that uh, that was there. Uh, let's see here. Audric Pinder, if God is less complex than, for example, a human, it means we evolved from the ultimate God. God is less complex for uh, than a human, then it means we evolved from the ultimate God. I'm not sure I understand your statement, Audric. Maybe if you could clarify that a little more. Um, but if, as we're going to talk about it a second, if God is complex, or if God is less than complex, if God is complex it's going to create some some serious problems and we're about to get into that here but looking at what what dawkins is saying dawkins thinks that simplicity of being at least as understood in the context of this discussion cannot comport with all the things that god is supposed to do uh in that he thinks that's a problem he believes that a being in order to do all of these different things think have consciousness forgive sins whatever the case might be that he would need to be complex Similar to us or like us. Okay. And at the toward the beginning of that particular uh, video, I played it's about an hour and a half. It's a long discussion. But he has stated that evolution is what makes the things around us go from primeval simplicity to complexity to complex. So, you know, we go, for instance, you might say we go from blubber in the dirt to consciousness and the complexity of the human brain or whatever the case might be. The evolution explains that and requires that. So it makes sense that Dawkins would say what he does about God. Okay. Since that which can think will act must be complex in order to be consistent with a Darwinian understanding of biology. Okay. And that's at about the five minute 533 mark. He talks about evolution, talking about going from, you know, primeval simplicity to complexity. Okay. So evolution in his view is what explains the move of life from simplicity to complexity, from random variations to non-random. Okay. Dawkins does not believe something can just happen or something can just come out of nothing. So ex nihilo would make no sense to him because there's no process of going from primeval simplicity to complexity. Now that that's rejected. So It makes total sense that he would say what he does about God, that God must be complex in order to do all these great things that we can't even do. He must be, what did he say, a big fat entity, right? He must be so complex that we can't even begin to, you know, he just must be enormous, an enormous being of size just because of what it takes, uh, according to his view, the complexity that's required in order to do the things that Christians say he does, etc. Okay, so again, bottom line Dawkins is interpreting God in a philosophy of science rather than metaphysics. He's, yes, he's making certain metaphysical assumptions, but he's not coming at this from a proper metaphysical understanding, uh, i.e., biblical understanding. And he has no clue what the categories he's dealing with. As we're going to see, when we talk about God as being simple, we're not saying that God is stupid or God is inept, God is just. You know, this dumb, mindless, static being in the sky. We're not saying that at all. In fact, it's completely the opposite. Simplicity necessitates an omnipotent being. And I think that might have been what Swinburne was trying to get at here. Um, although I don't think he said that as clearly as he could have. But I think that might have been what he's getting at. So Dawkins is not understanding, clearly, what simple is from a from a historical Um, Understanding. Really, when we're talking about simplicity, it's referring to God. He's not being partite. He doesn't have parts. He's not complex, right? Uh, And the natural result of that is that he is actus purus. He's pure act. This means he is the fullness of power and being. He lacks nothing and has no potential to be something than he already is. And if that were the case, God would be dependent upon something else. that is not himself, and that would not be um, the God of scripture. And just I see Audric put a comment here even if all God is is a mind, the imaginings of that mind would be arranged with a greater complexity than the most complex thing that the mind creates. Therefore, Dawkins is correct. Well, as we're getting into here, Dawkins doesn't address the issue of actus purus which uh, the historical understanding of divine simplicity necessitates. He's, ma- again, he doesn't understand at all the categories he's talking about. If he did, he would address this and, and have to deal with it, but he doesn't. So actus puris uh, is, God is is being in his fullness of power, right? He can forgive sin, sustain the world, create out of nothing, precisely because of this principle, this principle coupled with his infinity. God is infinite. Again, if God is not simple, he's dependent upon something outside of himself, he would have to take on new states of being, parts, a form of parts in order to be something that he is not. He would not be omnipresent, he would not be infinite, he would not be simple. But it's precisely because of his omnipotence, uh, his simplicity, his infinity that he is able to do these things. He is the fullness of, of his power. And he is his power. He doesn't have something that makes him other than he is that is less than God. That would be uh, a violation of that principle. Uh, So Dawkins is assuming that complex must be greater than simple. And again, this comes from his evolution, evolutionary worldview, in my opinion, when in fact, a simple being must be greater than the complex one, since a simple being is self-existing and not dependent upon anything outside of itself, it must be fully realized in its actuality. And this is definitely the God we see in scripture. Complexity requires that a being depend on each of its parts in order to be, and those parts are not equal to the to the being itself. If you take a part away, that part still exists, Right. But now that being is lacking something that it had before. It's dependent upon that part in order to be. That is not a being that is all powerful. That is not a being that can do the things that the, the God of Scripture. To, it's a being that's dependent upon something else to be. And that's uh, that's the issue that we have here. Uh, if we look at Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six, Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six says, Oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To whom be glory forever, Amen. So you can you can even see some. Uh, some Aristotelian concepts in here, right? Uh, you can see God is the efficient cause of all things. for All things are, are from him, right? And then ultimately you see the final cause of all things. All things are to him, to whom be glory forever, amen, right? So you can see uh, these concepts here. But the principle that we, we're seeing here is that no one has taught God. known in the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. No one has taught God. God is not dependent upon anything or anybody outside of himself. All things are from him. So who in the world has taught God? Right? So these principles are, are certainly found in scripture. And the natural conclusion that we have to come to is that God must be simple. God must be simple. If all things come from him, nothing can come prior to him. He cannot depend upon anything outside of himself. Therefore, he is simple because Complexity requires a dependency upon something that is not the thing itself to be. And that is a violation of uh, biblical Christianity. I'm going to look a little bit at some uh, historical theology here. Uh, Francis Chanel, (coughs) excuse me, Francis Chanel, he was a Westminster divine uh, and he wrote a book called The Divine Triunity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can actually find this on Amazon. This is one of those. Uh, forgotten books, publications. Um, so it's it's more of a facsimile than it is a, a true republication, but it's helpful to be able to read some of these guys uh, in their writings, although some of the, the spelling from the 17th century is, uh, can be difficult to work through. But I just want to read a little bit here on this idea of pure actuality. This is not a modern concept. This is historical Christianity. This is from page 128. Chanel says, quote, God is a pure act, and therefore he cannot but act vitally. He must needs, understand, and will. Here is no such liberty and mutability uh, opposed to unchangeable necessity, for as God cannot create to be because he is the first necessary and independent being. And his necessity of being speaks of his infinite perfection. so he cannot create to act because he is a pure act. he must needs acts vitally who is life itself. he must needs know and will because he is. Uh, I believe that says the best way again the spelling is is difficult here from the 17th century and and purest act I think is saying and the necessity speaks his purity and perfection also. Again, and hopefully I quoted that right, but the, the, the principle is there. God is pure act. God must be if he is truly an independent being. He's not dependent upon anything. He's not moving towards another state of being or moving towards a point from point A to point B in order to change from what he is not. God is a pure act. Richard Mueller, Reformed historian in his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms and the Entry of Actus Puris, uh, he says this, quote, a term applied to God as the fully actualized being, the only being not in potency. God is, in other words, absolutely perfect and the eternal perf- perfect fulfillment of himself. It is of the essence of God to be actus purus or uh, so insofar as God's self-existent being is an actu, in the state of actualization and never in potentia, in the state of potency. Or incomplete realization. The view of God as fully actualized being lies at the heart of the scholastic exposition of the doctrine of divine immutability. End quote. So if God cannot move from one state of being to another and having the potential to be something he is not, that must mean that God is immutable. You can see these doctrines are tied together. Okay. Dawkins does not get this at all, apparently. He's not, understand- he's not interacting with the historical literature on this topic. He's not interacting with the historical understanding of this in the proper categories. He has no clue what he's talking about, very clearly. Uh, and I'm going to historical material. I'm reading primary source material, secondary source material uh, on this topic. Now, looking at Doobie's book. Doobie, I'm working through this book now, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism uh, by Stephen Doobie. He teaches at Phoenix Seminary. Uh, he's... Um, written extensively on this topic. Look at page 25, uh, talking about divine auseity. He says, quote, divine auseity signifies that God is independent and entirely self-sufficient, not constituted as God by another. In its full material content, it entails that God is always fully himself and needs no further actualization of his being. He is not contained within a system of things where he would have to be distinct from others by lacking something that they possess, as it is in the distinction of one creature from another. Positively, the triune God is complete in himself in Trinitarian fellowship and enjoys a fullness of life from which he can freely communicate life and love to creatures. He is distinct from creatures, not negatively by lacking something that they have, but positively by being the one who has in an Eminent manner, all the perfections that can be found in creatures. End quote. Very helpful there. God's independence, uh, and then we'll look at uh, we'll look at Turretin real quick. Turretin, uh, great Reformed theologian in the 17th century, from his Institutes of Eclectic Theology. <laughs> this is the third topic from the third topic, seventh question. It says quote: This is proved to be a property of God. One, from his independence, because composition is of the formal reason of a being originated independent, since nothing can be composed by itself, but what whatever is composed must necessarily be composed by another. This is why complexity is a problem, right? And Dawkins doesn't understand that. Now, going back to Turritin. Now, God is the first and independent being, recognizing no other prior to himself. Two, from his unity, because he who is absolutely one, is also absolutely simple, and therefore can neither be divided or composed. So he cannot be complex, as Dawkins says. Three, from his perfection, because composition implies imperfection inasmuch as it as its passive power, dependency, immutability. Number four, from his activity, because God is a most pure act, having no passive admixture, and therefore rejecting all composition, because in God there is nothing which needs to be made perfect or can receive perfection from any other, then he is whatever can be and cannot be other than what he is. End quote. I think that's an excellent overview of the doctrine of divine simplicity. It hits all the main points right there. And Turretin is one of those resources that I frequent when dealing uh, with certain difficult topics. Very, very helpful. More than likely, he's dealt with you know some of these difficult issues. <clears throat> but all of this, again, complexity must necessarily mean that a being is made of parts i mean that's just the definition of complexity it's multi has multiple parts to make it whatever it is Work. so if if god is complex he is dependent he's weaker right so it's completely opposite simplicity is completely opposite of what dawkins is is asserting uh that it it means he's assuming it must mean that it's weak he can't do these things when in fact simplicity means that God is able to do the things that he does precisely because of his complexity. just requires a proper understanding of the categories at hand, which, of course, Dawkins doesn't understand. And then, of course, uh, later on in the video, this is more of a side note, I guess, but later on in the video, Dawkins tries to address the biblical notion that we are made in the likeness of God. Swinburne brings that up. And Dawkins says, well, we are complex, so why would God not be complex, right? And of course, this is a misunderstanding of the biblical categories of simplicity. And then the creature who's complex, obviously, we can't be like God in any categorical sense. Uh, we have to, we're like God uh, conceptually more than anything else as it relates to analogy. So uh, that's the only quote unquote common ground that we can find. Like God does not imply that there are any points of contact between us and God, but that there is similarity only by way of analogy. Okay. The same way an eye see something and the mind sees something. Both see, yet one does so fundamentally different from the other, categorically different. There is no point of connection there, right? <clears throat> the point of analogy is in the seeing concept only. Okay. Duby addresses um analogy on page 46 of the book I just read from him <clears throat> and we also deal with this topic extensively in another podcast episode we did on analogy and god I think it was a, a bit ago you can go look back in the historical um historical episodes and and find it okay but at the end of the day what this displays this uh, this discussion, this reaction from Dawkins is the rejection of the biblical and philosophical categories that came before. Okay. Rejecting sound metaphysics for unsound ones for a completely absurd view, such as uh, uh, evolution, uh, at least at the macro level, shows how far we have fallen, right? We, Because this was... There were certainly understandings of science that uh, began to kind of crumble into what we have today before Dawkins came on the scene. Uh, it, Doc, I'm, I'm sorry, Darwin came on the scene. Darwin is not the start of liberal and, and unbiblical science and a rejection of biblical philosophy. <clears throat> we see this uh, starting before him. He's really just a product of some of the things that came before right so it, and and dawkins even uh claimed to be a christian at one point i think darwin i'm sorry man I'm, their names sound so similar dawkins darwin um you know you're going to start and they both had the same understanding of naturalism and science so it just i'm getting the names confused Um, But, of course, and and this is one thing I want us to take out of this, and one thing as I was studying for this episode that kind of struck me, Um, this philosophical decay that we see in the secular world, like from Dawkins Dawkins and his followers, is showing up in the church, and in particular, reform circles. Okay. Uh, There's a quote by Jeff Johnson, who is a Reformed Baptist, uh, if I dare call him that, but I'm calling him that for the sake of just categorizing what circles he flows in, I guess, but a Reformed Baptist pastor and theologian who wrote a book, and we did a lengthy review on it, uh, The Failure of Natural Theology, Um, but I looked at a quote that he had from that book, and it sounded very similar to what Dawkins was saying in this video, uh, and I thought it was it was kind of astounding. I guess just like how similar it was, it was just like, wow, okay, this is this is not <laughs> this is not good. Um, but let's look at this here. This is from pages sixty six and sixty nine. They're really I think they were headers in the book, but they were espousing Jeff's position. He says, quote, this is Jeff Johnson, quote, actus purus is not the God of the Bible. Actus purus is oblivious and unconcerned. Actus purus cannot create. Actus purus does not have a free will. Actus purus is impersonal. Thus, according to Aristotle, God is somewhat deistic in that he is oblivious to the universe. End quote. That sounds a lot like what Dawkins said. Well, God can't do all these things if he's simple, right? And, and let's be clear, denying actus puris is to deny divine simplicity. You can't say I hold a divine simplicity over here while denying Actus puris over here. This is a critical aspect of that concept. So Jeff Johnson does not believe in divine simplicity or classical theism. let's just let's just get that out there right now. So he's putting himself basically essentially in the same category as Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, well, God can't be he must be complex in order to do all these things. Uh, and so Jeff Johnson is also saying, well, a God who is pure act can't create, is unconcerned, oblivious. Uh, he does not have a free will. I mean, these are all the same or virtually the same concepts that Dawkins is written. Well, God can't do something. He's limited if he's simple. That's essentially what Jeff is saying here. God has act as purists. He can't do these other things that God does. Let that sink in, Reformed Church. This is someone who claims to be a Christian, who claims to hold to a Reformed confession, and yet he's walking around espousing pagan philosophy. Think about that. He and Dawkins sound. He and a pagan atheist sound more similar than he does with biblical Christianity. That should uh, that should really sink in. That should really sink in, okay? Uh, and so we we have to be really careful as Christians that we're not adopting the ways of the world. And I think most of the time it happens unwittingly, uh, because we're more influenced by the world than we give ourselves credit for, we might have come out of some of these backgrounds. We might, uh, you know, have people we know in these backgrounds, or whatever the case might be, and they have, you know, these lingering uh, worldviews that float around in our mind, and they they die hard sometimes. Or we might not know at all. They, we just we're going along. And we're like that doesn't make sense. And instead of thinking it through from a biblical and historical perspective, and going, is this really consistent biblically? Is this really consistent with history? Is it really consistent with reason? Or is it is it garbage? Right. Uh, so I think that's something that we have to be really really careful about. I want to look at, um, brother Craig Carter again. I keep I keep throwing <laughs> Craig Carter out there good brother um you know he he's helped us in other areas helped us with our, our book reviewing it endorsing it um but he wrote a couple of really helpful works um at least interpreting scripture of the great tradition uh he did an article in the IR, journal of irbs theological seminary i want to just look briefly at both of these so if we look at pages 60 page 63 of his book here he talks about some of the you know the the metaphysical philosophical decay uh, within the church. He says, quote, we need to realize that the Augustinian Thomistic tradition has already spent centuries wrestling with metaphysical questions on which most modern theologians and almost all modern biblical scholars are mere novices. So the church has dealt with these things and wrestled with these things, yet most modern theologians have no clue what these categories are and have no clue what they're dealing with so you can see why a jeff johnson comes in and starts doing what he does he probably just has no clue about how to handle the history that has been presented for us he hasn't mastered these things uh and he should before talking about them or at least have a solid grasp of the basics um on page 85 we jump forward a little bit page 85 carter says quote all too often evangelicals try to pretend that they are uninterested in and unaffected by metaphysics, which simply means more often than not, they are unconscious disciples of some anti-Christian sophists. That's pretty harsh language. So I think that we could apply that here to Jeff. Jeff is a disciple of some of, some of this pagan philosophy, ironically, while he's trying to uh, allegedly, go against while well, he's trying to go against pagan philosophy by rejecting the biblical historical tradition that has been that has been uh, given to us. Uh, so you know we got to he's got to be so careful checking ourselves. Is our thinking consistent with Scripture? Uh, what is the church to say about this? Has the church dealt with these things as something that that we can that we can uh, glean from? Uh, this is from the IRBS, uh, the Journal of IRBS Theological Seminary. Craig Carter again, page 15 of an article he wrote called The Superiority of Pre Critical Metaphysics. Uh, He says, In a fallen world, the truth grasped by, say, the best strains of the Greek philosophical tradition is bound to be incomplete and riddled with error. Yet, truth mixed in with error is discernible, and it is real truth when corrected, refined, and in some cases. Given a better grounding in biblical revelation, such metaphysical truth is serviceable. And more important, it allows us to show that the God of the Bible is not a tribal deity of the Jews or the entity worshipped by one sect among others. Instead, it shows that the God of Scripture is the transcendent creator of the world. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the one and only true God of all that is and therefore should be worshipped by people everywhere. End quote. So, we we can utilize these concepts where consistent with scripture as we noted earlier uh, with john gill talking about colossians 2 8 we can service these things with scripture as christians where they're consistent biblically and we can use them to help us explain what the scriptures are saying in a way that uh, comports with reason because we don't believe in an unreasonable faith we don't believe in a faith that is just blind We don't believe that at all. We believe that we can back up what we say, and we should be able to do so from a reasonable standpoint, especially if we claim that our God is truth itself. God is not going to have us believe in something that is absurd and contradictory to reason. So we have to be looking at these things uh, in light of those categories. Um, And, of course, ultimately, it falls under Scripture with the proper principles uh, in place. Let's see. Uh, Michael Farrell put something in the chat here. Where exactly would we put Doctor White on the spectrum? Or does he agree with divine simplicity? What is his quibble? Um, with Doctor White, I I would say that White would agree with Jeff. He did endorse Jeff's book on natural theology, but in terms of how all the the logistics of that work out, I'm I don't know. I know he has uh, talked about issues he's had with the uh tomistic understanding of god and things like that and he's had issues with, with uh, other areas of the doctrine of god um but whether he would fall specifically in what jeff is saying uh when you really get down to it i don't know uh, i would say that uh, i think that would be the case just given the fact that he endorsed jeff's book and the book teaches these things so that that's kind of where I would go with it. Um, But I I think that James White is certainly in hot water as it relates to this, and is absolutely problematic. um, As it relates to these things, we did an episode. um, I think it was last year, I'd have to go back and look on a, a debate James White did with a Unitarian. And he talked about the concept of three centers of consciousness. And we, we responded to that in some of White's understandings of what person is in the Trinity. So he has some problems, um, for sure. And I, I think he would agree with Jeff here, given he endorsed the book. Um, but, you know, we'd, we'd have to work that out a little bit more to understand what the logistics of that are specifically. But I think it's safe to say that he would fall in the camp that Jeff would, because he endorsed the book, and some of the trajectory that he's gone on other areas. Uh, he's definitely I wouldn't put him in the Orthodox camp as it relates to the doctrine of God. That's for sure. Uh, I just wouldn't. That's my personal opinion. Uh, I think he has too many serious errors in that regard to say that. So hopefully that that's helpful, Michael. Um, but I think that is that's all we have to. I hope that's that was a helpful episode. Um, I know we're, we're coming up on an hour here, so a little longer one, I guess. But hopefully it's helpful. Good resource. Um, and, and can kind of whet your appetite for more. Uh, we've talked about the doctrine of God multiple times on this episode, so you can go on this podcast. So you can go and look back in our historical podcasts and find things on the doctrine of God in more detail. <clears throat> um, so we, And we provide resources, historical theology, biblical uh, exegesis, uh, you know, throughout um, a lot of those, I guess, that are hopefully helpful uh, for everyone here. Uh, but with that, I think we'll close out next week. Um, plan to have my wife on the show. We're going to do a, an episode on marriage, and I, I hope that will be helpful. If you have questions that you want discussed on the show, um, then feel free to submit them. You can tag us on Twitter at The Particular Bee, on our Facebook page, The Particular Baptist. <clears throat> you can email us at info at the particular Baptist.net with any questions you want discuss <coughs> or any topics you want dealt with as it relates to marriage on the episode. Um, that I that could be helpful. And Michael said something else here. Is there anything that have forgotten to say? Um, from what I recall, Michael, uh, his concept of what a divine person is, I had problem with. Now, I don't know if he's really consistent with that definition, but what we read from in the book in our episode on the three centers dealing with three centers of consciousness in God. uh, He had some issues with, um, with what a divine person is. I took issue to it anyways. Um, But I will, if you want, Michael, um, I can put uh, in the show notes here, I can put a link to that episode so you can kind of see more of what we talked about. Uh, and hopefully that'll be helpful. All right. Well, everyone, have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us today, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Have a great Lord's Day tomorrow, and a great Labor Day weekend for those in the U.S. Take care.